This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have a treat for you. We have one of the most successful trial lawyers uh, who has some of the biggest verdicts it's currently alive today, uh, Benedict Morelli. You probably have heard of him. He re- represented Tracy Morgan when he got uh, hit by a Walmart truck. Uh, he sued Bill O'Reilly uh, with Fox News, has tons of eight-figure and even a nine-figure jury verdict on a single plaintiff case, and he's nice enough to talk to us today. Uh, Mr. Morelli, how are you doing today? Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. So let me just start... Uh, we were actually talking a little bit before the show, and you were, you were talking about how you're always learning. But I guess from the beginning, what was your path to learning how to try a case? Well, I was very fortunate um, because I was working in a law firm for four and a half years uh, before I was admitted to the bar. And uh, I was conferencing cases and handling the court calendar um, doing a lot of different things, answering the phone uh-huh. and filing away the files. Cause at that time, you know, we weren't electronic and, uh, and anyway, I had an opportunity to be in court and to sit in on many, many jury trials. And I knew a lot of the lawyers cause I was only, you know, early twenties and I would ask, the lawyers who were trying cases, whether I could sit in on their jury selections, because those were in separate private rooms. And they would always uh, feel very proud that I was asking that. So they would say yes. And I would sit in and, and watch jury selection. And then I would watch all different parts of trials of lawyers I knew were very successful in terms of winning and and giving good arguments. And I would sit there during jury selection and during trials and rule in and rule out what I thought could be helpful to me. Uh huh. So when I became a lawyer, I had already seen so many jury selections and so many trials that I um, had adopted, you know, mentally and emotionally what would work for me. Because as you know, you know, you can't take every single thing you hear or learn, even if you think it's good, and be able to adapt it to you, because we're all so different and all so unique that the most important thing in front of a jury, and I'm, you know, I'm sure most people say this, is authenticity. 
And so if you are trying to be someone you are not, even if it would work for someone else, if it doesn't work for you, it's not a good idea to, to do that. And so what are some of the things you do today to keep getting better? Uh, we, we keep uh, researching cases. We keep hearing about um, different trials. One of the things I don't do is focus as much on the amount that the jury awarded. Um, I do, but I need to look behind it to find out what was the case. Was it a difficult case? Um, was it an individual case? Because I'm an individual case lawyer who also does mass tort cases. I'm not a mass tort lawyer who does an occasional individual case. Um, and so I, I like to know what was the case. Um, how did somebody get whatever the verdict is, 10 million, 20, 50, 100, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and how do I assess that um, victory? You know, um, that's very important to me to find out something about the case and look behind it rather than just the numbers. Now, we know the newspapers and online and, and people who, you know, want to talk on television about it. They only look at the number, you know, look at this, this case, this lawyer only got 40 million, but this lawyer got <laughs> 5 million. Yeah. But that $65 million victory and they're both victories, um, especially in this day and age, um, might not have been as impressive as the victory in the 40-something million dollar yeah. um, and, and that's, I think, important for us to, re to remember. So when you find out, what is it you do to find out what worked and didn't work in other people's cases? Well, you know, we, we try to, and, you know, it, it's interesting that you ask that because right now I'm, I'm getting ready to argue an appeal in um, probably next month in the appellate court in Manhattan. And um, I only argue appeals of cases I've tried where I've gotten a verdict where the defendants are now appealing uh, because I got too much money. So and or and and or to reverse the case. Um, and so I've gotten the briefs of many other cases that have been mentioned and cited in, in the briefs of the appellants and actually review them, the parts that I think are necessary for me to know about. Um, I'm very fortunate that I have a number of young lawyers in my office many of whom are mid to late 30s. And um, they want to keep learning. And, and so what I do is I set up trial teams in the office where I don't allow any case to be litigated without at least three lawyers working on the case. And it's not the same lawyers all the time, obviously, we rotate. So... Um, they're, they're very inquisitive and they want to find out why this, why that. And right now we're, we're doing uh, different trucking cases, actually, 
in uh, in about four or five different states. Okay. And so obviously we have to learn what the law is of the state. We have to find the case law. And, uh, you know, we, we find out that there are some states with some very difficult laws for plaintiffs. Yeah. And, and others that are much more friendly. And, and, and fortunately or unfortunately, two of our cases are in one of those each. <laughs> so we have a friendly and an unfriendly. Yeah, I know I'm, uh, my par- partner, Mallory Peacock, and I are jumping in on a Pennsylvania case. And, you know, doing the research, it's just so refreshing <laughs> compared to Texas. Uh, oh, no, it's very, 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 very different uh, in, in Pennsylvania. And, and by the way, that is another thing that, that people might want to look at when they look at large verdicts. Not only what was the case, but where was it tried? Absolutely. You know, to, to decide uh, what you think about it. You said something uh, earlier that really kind of piqued my attention. You said you're an individual case lawyer that sometimes does mass torts, not a mass tort lawyer that sometimes does individual cases. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I was um, raised on handling individual cases. The first mass tort that I that I did was uh, DES, which is diethylstilvestrol, which is what lawyers, uh, new lawyers, learn about in law school um, when they're learning about market share. And and actually, there was no such term as mass torts when I was doing uh, DES cases. So I always I like to deal with the client directly. Um, I like to prep the witnesses myself. Um, and even though I'm working now with with two or three or four lawyers on each case, because I don't let anyone try a case alone either. Um, and I and I utilize my lawyers to do that. They're always present when I'm preparing a witness or I'm taking a deposition or I'm cross examining uh, someone because. I want them to learn from me, but I don't always tell them. I learn from them too. <laughs> but no, they, they know that I, that I take very seriously learning from them. And I ask them what their opinion is. How, how should we approach this witness? Do you think that one of the biggest problems that I have, like we had in the last case that I tried, is that I want to get a big verdict? Okay, because in that case, before jury selection, I had an offer of 30 million. Wow. Before before jury selection. And that's very, very unusual, very unheard of. And so I want to make sure that we're always going forward. We're always getting better. What I want defendants to know is that I'm a really nice guy and I'm, I'm willing to help out lawyers if they have a problem, but I'm going to crush you, you know, when I have to. Yeah. And and if I tell you that I want fifty million dollars to settle the case, I don't want forty five. Okay, and I and I find that our system of demanding money puts us at a huge disadvantage as plaintiffs' lawyers because insurers, which is whom we're usually dealing with, always want to divide it by three or at least by two. 
And, and, and so when, when a judge asks me for a demand now, I, I say, do you really want one? Because I'm not taking 50% of it or a third off. So, so for me to demand, if I want 50 million in a case, you want me to demand 150 million? It doesn't make any sense. So, so, you know, I, I try to be as easy as I can be early in the case. But if you make me work, every, every day you make me work, I become more and more difficult. Because I'm just like all of us. We're a little lazy. We want to get the money for our client and go to the bank. All right. And, and that's not any, there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to pay us. Yeah. How do you get the confidence, you know, to, you know, there's always so much pressure when you have your number to come off the number, to compromise, to take less. How do you get the confidence to stick to it and know you've picked a number that's a real number that, you know, you can do that or better at trial? I think you have to spend a lot of time with introspection and also speaking to the people in your office or your wife or your kids or, you know, and real, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? This is like, you know, Ben Morelli's personal moot court. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and really asking, you know, what they think. And then I, I filter it all and I decide, but it, for me, you know, it, it's a, it's a little bit different because when I said in the Tracy Morgan case, when we were negotiating a settlement and I was speaking directly to Walmart in that case, not to the insurers, as you probably know, because Walmart sued the insurers for a year and a half after that to get their money back. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, cause I said to them, I'm going to deal with you directly or I'm not going to negotiate. So, so when, when you do that, and I coined the phrase at that time, when I have a royal flush, I don't play it as a pair of twos. <laughs> and so the answer really is, first of all, look at your case. Okay. Then look at what your venue is. Then look at who your prospective jurors are and look at your witnesses and decide not only what witnesses you're going to call, but in what order. I am a big proponent of witnesses going in a very specific order. I like the plaintiff to be somewhat sandwiched in the middle. Okay. Unless the plaintiff is my best witness, which on occasion is, is true. And I, I, I remember when I was trying a lot of medical malpractice cases early in my career, I used to say the best plaintiff I have is the one who's dead or under general anesthesia at the time when it happened. Okay, so that they can't make a mistake. Yeah. So, so the hardest thing to do is to prepare the plaintiff. That's the hardest thing to do. And I don't want to be only an enterprise lawyer handling mass tort cases. I'm not just a businessman. I'm actually a lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. 
I've been trained. I've trained myself. I was training for five years before I was admitted. So um, I take pride in that. And I take pride in taking individual cases and, and making them much more. I mean, I had a case a few years ago, uh, a traumatic brain injury case, where my they offered $175,000. And it was a split trial. So first I tried the liability. I tried the liability, if you could believe this, for three months. Wow. Okay. After I received the unanimous verdict, we then picked a new jury and we tried the damages for two and a half months. Okay. And I asked the jury for 55 million and the jury gave me 62 million. Wow. Now, <clears throat> I was only offered. <clears throat> 175,000. So it didn't take a lot of guts on my, on my part in that case. In the last case where I turned down 30 million before we selected a jury, I have to admit, I had to think about it. Yeah. I had to think about it long and hard. Now, a lot of lawyers and a lot of judges say to me, no one has more, you know what, than me. Okay. But, you have to temper that with the risk reward. Am I, am I jeopardizing, let's say, five million to get six? Probably not if, if I'm really taking a risk. Um, but am I, am I jeopardizing five to get eight? Probably yes. So, you know, it, it's just a matter of, of which case it is. In this last case, the defendants were so crazed about trying a case against me that they went to the judge and told the judge that we shouldn't be able to pick a jury, that Ben Morelli should not be allowed to speak directly to the jurors. We want your honor to pick the jury. And he looked at them and said, I don't think you're going to be happy with that. <laughs> Now go pick a jury. And we picked a jury. Then they made a motion before opening statements to limit what I could tell the jury in opening. And the judge says, I won't do that. Then I was cross-examining their first expert witness, which was a brain injury doctor. And they stopped in the middle and made a motion that I was intimidating the witness with my mannerisms and my questions. And the judge says, I don't see it exactly like that. I have the transcript of the trial, so I know what he said. <laughs> I don't see it exactly like that. I, I think you're right that Mr. Morelli is intimidating the witness or she's being intimidated by his questions. But that's his job. <laughs> okay. And, and then before closing arguments, they made more motions that I shouldn't be able to ask for an amount of money, that I should be limited in saying this and saying that. And on appeal, they said that I mentioned the defendant's name too many times because it's Live Nation worldwide. So I was trying to fire up the jury about how big they are, but it's the name of the defendant. Okay, and that's in their papers. Okay, so. <laughs> so 
So Live Nation Worldwide, that was a, what, a $102 million jury verdict you got on a single injury case back in 2019? Yes, December 2019. What type of injury did you have? Um, we have a young man who was 30 years old at the time of the accident, had four brain surgeries. Oh, wow. And um, he's now 36, and he's limited in things that he can do, obviously. Um, and right now needs a fifth surgery to repair his skull. Um, but the, the interesting thing about it is when I was concerned about trying this case, I brought my team in to my office when we could actually do that. And, and we all spoke without masks. And, uh, and I asked them, what do you think about this plaintiff because I'm very concerned about being able to get a big verdict because he walks and talks. Right. And, you know, he's not in a wheelchair. He's not using a cane. Uh, he's not drooling on himself. Um, and he, he looks better than he is, let's say, which is, I think, fair comment. Um, and so I tried the case that way. And I told the jury Look, I understand. And, and, and he was sitting when I, when I did my closing argument, he was sitting in the courtroom and I pointed to him and I said, look at how good he looks today. But let's talk about how good he's not, you know? And, and so I, I, I remember years ago, I, I tried a case of a double amputee. And, um, and this is, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, I tried a case of a double amputee. And it was a very tough liability case. I was very concerned about it. And um, when I was doing my closing argument with reference to damages, I uh, he was sitting, you know, in his wheelchair in, in, in the front of, of the uh, right near the jury box. And I said to the jurors, you know, I said, there he is. You know, I said, and um, you see him in that wheelchair? That's the way it's going to be when when this case is over. You see that, you know, he's missing his two legs. Obviously, that's the way it's going to be when the case is over. None of that is for you. That's for real. I said, but you see the tie he's wearing? That's actually my tie. That tie is for you. Just tell him the truth. Yeah. Tell them the truth. That, I think, is is the thing that I've learned over and over and over again. And I've been, you know, very, very fortunate that, that you know, people ask me all the time, why do jurors respond to you when you ask them for $40 million in a case, which I did, and they gave it to me, and uh, in one case, I asked for $20 million and they gave me $41 million. And why did they respond to you like that? Um, how do you know how to talk to them? And my real answer, without being flip about it at all, is that I am them. I'm exactly them. I grew up like most of them. My, my father was a bricklayer. Uh, you know, when I talk to them, I talk to them the way I the way I speak 
normally. Um, now, within reason, of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I don't um, talk down to them. Uh, I don't talk like a lawyer, whatever that is. And, and if I do say terms, medical terms or legal terms or anything like that, um, in the very next sentence, I say it in English and I explain it to them. And, and I've, I've always done that. And, and many, many judges have, have said to me over the years that I win the case in jury selection. Um, and I take that as a compliment, obviously, because it means that I know how to speak to prospective jurors. And, and I never take them for granted, to be honest. Um, I, I tried I took a couple of verdicts in 2019, and one of the verdicts I took was in a wrongful death case of an 85-year-old um, who died after a couple of months in, in the hospital. And I had to speak to the jury about the fact that they were giving money to a family and not to the person. And, and, and they have a lot of trouble with that. Michael, they they have a lot of trouble with that. And you really have to talk about it. Um, and I explained and then they said to me, but he's 85 years old. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and what do you mean you're going to ask for millions of dollars or a lot of money? And I said to them, how many in the array remember when you know somebody casually or the person is an actor or someone famous and you hear that they die, what's the first thing that you ask? How old was he or she? And if you hear 45, you say, oh, too young. But if you hear 85, you say, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And so I was thinking about that as they were questioning me about why would they ever award millions of dollars for an 85-year-old who's not going to get the money. And so I came up with this on the fly because I had to, because I didn't anticipate they were going to ask me that. I'm not that good. So they, I then said to them, but now let's think about it being your father, your grandfather, or your grandmother, or your mother. And that person dies at 85. And then you pound your chest and you say, too early. Yeah. And that's the difference. And they said, we could do it. Wow. And so I had young jurors, you know, and, and, and that's not usually the case in my, in my cases. Um, the four person was like 32 and another uh, person was from Nebraska, had just moved to New York and was 35. And I asked them to award $12 million and they came back in 28 minutes with $12 million. Wow. And it was liability, you know, and damages. Both. So you just got to tell them the truth. Tell them what you think. And I also make it my business 
to not pander to them. I don't I don't suck up to them. I'm very nice, obviously. I'm not going to be disrespectful. That's ridiculous. Uh, I might as well just take a gun and shoot myself in the foot. <laughs> not going to do that. But what I do is, and, and it comes up often, where a juror, because they're very outspoken these days, will say to me, well, you know, you have to be nice to us because you're trying to get us to do what you want. <clears throat> and I say, actually, I'm not here for you to love me, but I am here for you to respect me. Just like I'm going to respect you. I'm not going to tell you anything that I don't think is truthful. And I want you to always be true to your oath. And that's the way I do it. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. Now, I can tell, I'm, I'm imagining from the size of your verdicts, I don't like the, the Jones Beach, the Live Nation Worldwide case. And I think you have the largest pain and suffering verdict in New York history, or at least the largest one that would ever be kept, uh, yeah. 40-something million. So you have to be and you've done it in cases where you've tried damages only and haven't heard the liability. So you somehow have to be learning what's going on with your client that is legitimately worth that much compensation. What do you do to, to you know, internalize and, and learn, you know, what your client's been through? Well, I don't only speak to the client when I can, which I did in this case. I speak to the family. Okay. In this case, he was very close to his brother. I spent, and, and, and my associate, David, who you met earlier, uh, and the rest of the team spoke to the entire family on numerous occasions, in person, in the office. Um, and we would, we would speak as a group. And then I would assign each lawyer a family member to prepare for the testimony while I spoke to the plaintiff. And I listened to what all the family members said. And I said, what stands out in your mind that makes Mark so different today from the way he was before this happened to him. And each one of them had a different story about the fact that he'll just cross the street without looking. Almost like he's not with it. And I, I thought that coming from his mom, who actually is a registered nurse, 
was important testimony. The fact that his brother <clears throat> was trying to have Mark be able to be more independent would drive with him a certain distance to see if he could be safe and, and allow his brother that independence. And instead of hiding that from the jury to say, oh, he can't drive anymore. That's how bad he is. I told the story. I told the story. And then I told why the case was worth as much as it was, because actually the jury awarded 85 million in conscious pain and suffering. Oh, wow. The, the 41 million is what the trial court reduced it to. How do you just mentally learn to trust your, it seems like you're just telling the whole truth and trust them that they're smart enough to figure out what's real and what's not. Uh, how do you mentally learn to trust people like that? Well, you know, it's, it's really funny. I've had, I've had a lot of um, experience with um, working with, on two or three occasions, I was fortunate enough to work with other lawyers, um, sometimes even from Texas. And um, I would, and I've second seated two or three different lawyers in my career, even though I'm not a second seat kind of guy, um, because I believe in, you know, having lawyers win their case. If, and if I could be help, I could be of help, you know, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and so they often not only use you know, these mock juries to try their case, which I've never done in my life. But they also use jury consultants, which I've never done in my life. And during one of the trials, there was three jury consultants. And at the end of the case, I was right as to who they should have knocked off. And they were wrong, all three of them. And so if I am fortunate enough to have that instinct, I have to live and die by it. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I, I, if, if God forbid I used the jury consultant and that jury consultant said something in opposite to what I was thinking or my instincts were, and I went with that and it was wrong, I would be very upset about that. If I'm personally wrong, I could take responsibility for it. Luckily, when I bet on the jury, I'm right. Um, because even though we know there are a lot of very difficult jurors, and difficult because they've been brainwashed by many big companies and insurers over the years with, you know, terms like tort reform, and uh, and the like, you know, we have a lot of work to do when when we're dealing with jurors. Um, I don't care what state you're in, <laughs> you know, you could be in uh, in New York, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, uh, you know, Illinois, Ohio. You got your work cut out for you, you know. 
And um, when you figure out your theory of the case, never deviate. The theme in jury selection is the theme in opening statement, is the theme in direct, is the theme in cross-examination, is the theme in closing argument, within reason. Doesn't mean you don't add and subtract, but the theme, the overriding theme must remain the same. A jury can follow that, okay? You can't, and, and what a lot of younger lawyers do, not all, but many younger lawyers do, including me when I was a younger lawyer, is we try to cover everything like a blanket. That's a mistake. It's a rookie error. You can't do that. You got to let it go. You can't cover everything. And then I have um, another expression that I use. You know, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Because defendants' lawyers are always offering we plaintiffs' lawyers some of their Kool-Aid to drink. They want us to follow their theme, their defense. And oftentimes lawyers do that. They get caught up in it. They get caught up in it. And they can't stop. So they're trying to discredit something. Right. You know, when it hasn't even been credited yet. Maybe when they tell the jury their stupid theory, the jury's going to go like that. And you got to be watching. Yeah. Okay. And one of the things that I would say that I think I do differently from other lawyers is in jury selection for sure. I don't have a bag. I don't have a pad. I don't have a pen. I don't take a note. I don't read from any notes. I talk to them and I try my best to remember as much as I can of what they say. And if I forget something that they say, well, then it wasn't that important for me to talk about. But I, I don't sit and take notes. And, and, I, and I never allow myself to have a pen so that I don't have to worry about resisting the urge uh, to do that. Now, look, Michael, that works for me, okay? I'm not saying that that should be what everyone does. And, and when I train the lawyers in my office or I give a lecture, I don't tell people to do that. What I do say is this is what I do. And what, what is the reason that I do it? Because it is not a voir dire, as you call it in Texas, or, <laughs> or a voir dire, as we call it in New York. It is, is not just asking questions. It's watching, watching, paying attention to the jurors when they answer. What's the body language? You can't always read it, but if you keep watching, you, you may pick it up. You may pick it up. And so sometimes it's just very obvious because 
I could be questioning a juror in the first six, let's say, or the first 12, according to how you're selecting, because I know in, in Texas it's different. I'm watching some of those jurors in the back when they're making faces when I'm asking a certain question. So I'll, if they come up to the front and I'll, I'll say, you know, I saw you make a face back there. What was that face about? I think it was because you didn't like my question. Am I right about that? You know, that's, that's the way I like to handle it. You know, I stopped taking notes, uh, in jury selection. Now, I have other people that are in the courtroom taking notes, but and that's okay. But I and don't, and uh, that's okay because then you are paying attention. Yeah, I find that it, it distracts the attention. The other thing is, if if someone says something negative for the case, and I stop to write it down to judge, I am my body language, my vibe is changing with that juror. Now that now that juror is someone I'm even just subconsciously rejecting. We're not going to have the same communication, and and, it, and it's going to spread to other people. So I actually, you know, just talk and listen and kind of follow where the conversation goes. And I even tell my team, like, you got to take, you got to pay careful attention because I might not remember anything. I'm just going to be there talking to people. Um, you know, Michael, you know what this means. Hmm. You're no longer a young lawyer. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> something about that turning fifty. <laughs> You know, you you uh, you learn, and and also I think what you say is exactly one hundred percent right. But also, when you stop to write it down, the jury can pick it up. Yeah. But for me, the biggest change in the whole trial, and and it's something I I, it's, I don't know if if I'm right or wrong. It's a it's a gut feeling I have for you was just learning to trust the jury. Yeah. And I was worried about looking for who's going to screw me. These people are out to get me then that's a bad vibe the whole trial when I'm just like, I trust these people. They're, they're not dumb. They're here to do the right thing. Then I don't have to worry about every little argument the defense makes because they're smart enough to figure that out. And I can stick to my case. And uh, it's just so empowering and it works better. When you treat people with respect and trust them, they're going to treat you better than if you're all suspicious and, and, and don't trust them. Well, that's the same thing as just being honest with them. Yeah. Because you're, you're not only honest in what you're saying, but you're honest in your body language. You're honest in, in your whole demeanor. Um, and, and look, jurors are sitting there and they're watching you. You're, you're as the plaintiff's lawyer, and I tell lawyers this all the time, you're the producer, the director, the choreographer, the script writer, think about it. It doesn't happen unless you say it happens. Yeah. You know, the case doesn't get tried unless you say it gets tried. Look at this great power that you have. Why would you be afraid? Okay. You open to the jury. You speak first. You speak last in most situations. And, you know, that's also state by state, but, you know, you have all of this, this great empowerment. Why should I walk around being uneasy or afraid? Now, people have said to me, you turned down 30 million. Wasn't there a risk? There's a risk in everything. You know, did I think it was a great risk? No, I didn't. 
I, I read the jury and I said, can this jury give me 10 million or 15 million, which is a lot less than been offered? Yes. I'm willing to take that risk because a lot of times what I've done over the years, obviously I don't, I don't do it out loud. I do it to my people. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, at a certain point, I'll know. I'll have a very strong sense of the jury after jury selection or after opening, let's say, um, hopefully after jury selection. Um, and I'll say to them, that's my jury. And once I say that, I never say it unless I really feel very strongly about it. It doesn't mean I'm going to take them for granted. I'm never going to do that. But you could say things to your jury that you can't say if it's not your jury. And you have to be cognizant of what venue you're in. You know, it's not a good idea to say, you know, and I, I remember the first case I tried in Illinois in, in the federal court. Um, and um, out of the jurors, there were eight jurors. And it has to be unanimous because it's the federal court. And I had never been in Illinois in my life. This was about 11 years ago. And I, I had six of the eight jurors were farmers. And I, I opened, you know, to the jury after jury selection, because you know, the judge picks the jury. So I looked at them and I said, I'm Ben Morelli from New York, but you know that already. <laughs> Just when I open my mouth. And by the way, I've never been on a farm. But I'm going to tell you what I think about this case. And hopefully you'll understand. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And so never lie to him. Never try to be who you're not. You know, years ago when I was a very young lawyer, there were a number of lawyers in New York who used to believed that if they went in front of a jury with a beat up old suit and they looked like they needed the money, that the jurors were going to give them the money because they looked beat up with old ripped suits and stuff. And I always thought that was ridiculous. So I, I always dressed up better, you know, and it's worked. But, you know, it's what works for you and what makes you confident, you know. But, but just, you know, I don't know anything about the last case that you just settled, which was, I heard, a very big case. But did you feel that that you had very strong liability in that case? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, so and, and so you had, let's say, if not a royal flush, a straight flush, <laughs> you I, know. I had a royal flush. It was you a, a rare case, flush. yeah. You know, um, don't play it like you've got ace high (laughs) yeah that that gives you confidence too it was the most relaxed i'd ever been going into a trial it was crazy (laughs) but i heard that you were going to try the case virtually i was and and i i i um i i love your your guts (laughs) you know well my client needs the money and uh you know it's when we start having non-virtual trials again, there's going to be a huge backlog of criminal and child protective services cases. And, you know, I've got a man who was the family breadwinner 
who can't work anymore because of a brain injury. Uh, and can this family afford to wait another two years to get a quote unquote more perfect trial? Uh, and frankly, because we had worked it so hard, I mean, you know, we brought in professional TV people to help us do the camera work for opening and, and certain. I heard. Uh, and, you know, I didn't think the other side was going to work as hard at it. I thought we'd have an advantage. <laughs> they, they, they weren't, <laughs> for sure. But, you know, the, look, the interesting thing is, and one of the things that I that I do um, certainly in the last, let's say, decade, um, is I have the ability to use the case for the client to borrow money. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if the case is, like we say, a royal flush, um, I can do that and be able to negotiate the interest rate to where it's not totally prohibitive. And so I do that if, in fact, I, I think that there's going to be an extended waiting time for a trial, even before the pandemic. Pandemic's yeah. told the story, you know. No one knows what's going to be when we're back in business, so to speak. You know, um, so you probably made the right decision. Well, certainly they paid you, so you made the right decision. Um, but, you know, that's that's what I tend to do before the pandemic. In Texas, actually, is one of the few states that we can actually lend clients our own money. It's a it's a double edged sword. Uh, one, you know, you can keep your clients from starving. You know, in this case, I've been, you know, when I first got hired, they had a family of four. The, his wife had a sister who was actually going through chemotherapy at the time that had a spare bedroom. So all four were living in the spare bedroom. Oh my God. Uh, you know, two people on a, the two kids on a small bed and the two parents sleeping on mattresses on the floor. And, uh, so I actually, you know, was renting them a house, paying the utility bills, making oh. up for the salary out of my pocket, uh, which right. we can do in Texas, which, you know, so, but still he needed finality and, and they're, I've done well, but there comes a limit to how much I can put in at some point. Uh, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't realize that because in New York, obviously, you know, we're prohibited. Yeah, most most states you are, and uh, and it's good and bad. The the problem is sometimes you know you to get or keep a case, you have to lend money uh, for the living expenses. At least we have the coverage that we can say we can't do that. Exactly. Thank you to everyone who attended Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp in August. We had an excellent virtual turnout this year and are already thinking of how we can continue to raise that bar for next year. If you'd like to attend virtually in 2021, be sure to mark May 20th, 2021 on your calendar now and save the date. To stay updated with details as they become available, visit BigRigBootCamp.com and sign up for our mailing list. And now back to the show. Something else that I found really interesting, you know, there's such a trend and, and I've, and I'm admitting I'm following the trend of, of becoming a specialist. Like I try to do trucking and commercial vehicle cases. And unless it's a possible seven figure fee, I'm not learning another area of law right now. Uh, I used to do everything and I've really specialized. I know a lot of other people that do that. You've gotten huge verdicts on so many different types of cases. I mean, not just trucking, but civil rights, medical malpractice, even like sexual harassment, and employment law. How do you do it? Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because I also tried a polio vaccine case yeah. about 
about 11 to 12 years ago, which don't exist anymore. And the case was around for 30 years because they took so many appeals. And the lawyer who had the case said, if anyone could win this case, it's you. So when when they give me flattery, it's very hard for me to say <laughs> case. So my wife knows that. So so what I what I do is for me personally, if it's a civil case, not a criminal case, don't try those. If it's a civil case, I feel that I can learn it. And I when I was a very young lawyer, only admitted maybe five years, uh, maybe from five to ten years, I was a specialist in eye cases. And so I was trying this medical malpractice case, the first one that I ever tried, um, and I hired or retained an ophthalmologist who did the surgery and showed me how to do the surgery before I tried the case. But I, I, I take it as, as a challenge because for me, uh, and this has always been true, I try my very, very best to be different from what the insurers think we are. They think all we do is run after money. And so I run after getting the largest verdict and result and settlement for my client and to, of course, feed my ego that I'm good enough to get these results. And so I, I try to keep challenging myself, you know, can I, can I get a big verdict in this case? You know, can I, can I, you know, we, we went to Illinois in the federal court in the sexual harassment case. And, and I'm sitting in, in this room with, I don't know, 75 prospective jurors. And the judge is picking the jury and he's asking them, how many think this? And they're raising their hand and whatever. And then, and then he, he brought all of the jurors out after he did his voir dire. And he said, okay, lawyers, you know, now I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell me how many questions you want me to ask and which questions. And, um, I'm not saying I'm going to ask any of them, but tell me what you think. Mr. Morelli, what do you think? Do you have a question or questions that you want me to ask? And I said, yes. And he said, how many? And I said, one. And he said, what? I said, one. He said, okay, what's the question? I said, but wait a second. I ask that you ask that question to each person individually and get their, their voice answer, not raising their hands. What's your question? I said, what comes to mind when you hear the term sexual harassment? He said, I'll do it. And 50% of the prospective jurors were excused. Wow. Okay. 
And that's when I wound up with these eight jurors and two alternates. And, um, um, and they awarded eight, $95 million. How did, I, I was wondering that, what was it, you know, that you, that made that case a $95 million case? What, what facts well, were there? Well, it was, the, the plaintiff was a young woman, um, young blonde woman, about 23 years old. And, um, and she had only, the only treatment she had was two visits to a psychologist. Okay. So that the award for compensatory damages for those two visits was 15 million. Okay. The punitive damages was 80 million. Right. Now, I can't say that this was not a very terrible sexual harassment case because it was. Because after they were calling her names and she was working with all men in this store with, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 men. Um, and every once in a while they would grab her like her backside and things like that. Ultimately, the manager, you know, took her in the back one day, threw her down and tried to have sex with her. And then he masturbated on her. Okay. I don't really think that anyone, anyone can hear that and say that that's not terrible. Yeah. You know, and so did I have the goods with reference to that? Yes, I, I, I think I did, but I read it right. Now I could have settled the case during trial for $2 million, but I refused to do it. You know, obviously I spoke to my client, but yeah, but I usually have a lot of sway over my client. I, I, and I got so lucky in that case, because if you think about it in the federal court, uh, in, in that jurisdiction, I get two summations. So I sum up first and last. And then I was lucky enough to have a punitive damage trial. So I summed up again. So this is the case in my career that I summed up four times. And how much do we love that, Michael? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we love giving closing argument before in one case. <laughs> Great. Now you have, uh, you've said, you know, a number of lawyers working under you. How do you, you know, motivate and then supervise the lawyers that work for you to make sure that, you know, you're maintaining that standard of excellence. So you have, you know, you're in a legal position and have the case worked up to be able to go try these cases at a high level. Well, what I do is I make them know one thing that although I rely on every single one of them on the team to do what I ask them to do, like one will do all the motions in limine. Okay, and the other one is is making sure that that particular witness is prepared, you know, but they know that no matter what they read, the medical records, the documents, because some cases are document heavy and some are not, whatever it is, they know at the end of the day, I'm going to read that too. So I'm going to rely on them to tell me everything 
before I even read it sometimes, oftentimes. But they know I'm going to. And they know that I'm not going to take a rest and go into a recliner, smoke a big Cuban, and and say, okay, youngins, you know, this is, you know, you got to work. I don't have to work anymore. I'm too important. Uh-uh. I'm never too important. I'll never be too important. You know, my father is actually deceased a long time, and he told me that if I ever become too important, I better wake up and realize that I've been I've become unsuccessful. So, mm-mm, never. Um, I always, you know, do the work myself, and and I'm lecturing them all the time during this pandemic. We've hardly missed a day. Every morning at 10 a.m., and I I didn't do it today to be on with you. Thank you. Every morning at 10 a.m., I have a Zoom call with the lawyers. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, after that call, I have a Zoom call with the office. And we talk about all different kind of things. We talk about the pandemic. We talk about if we're feeling depressed. We talk about keeping our spirits up. Uh, we talk about working hard, but making sure that at the end of the day that that we relax and we realize that it's going to be over. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so I'm I'm constantly lecturing them whether they like it or not. And I have a lot of stories of cases that I've been on because I've been trying cases for so long. When I first started, I tried small claims cases. I tried property damage cases that never exceeded $3,000. Wow. And those property damage cases, I tried them with juries because we could then in the civil court. Then I tried personal injury cases where the most I could recover in the civil court was $10,000. And we used to call that ringing the bell if you got 10000 So after I tried five cases in a row and hit for 10000 the people I was working for at the time said, you got to try Supreme Court cases now. And so that my background is just different from um, many lawyers today, but you have to adapt. Because, Michael, you know how you have to learn how to be a trial lawyer. You know what makes you better. You know your learning style, you know. And and the way you've already stated today about your jury selection, I know you get it, okay? And, and, And you'll have other people doing it. But you're paying attention. You're not just relying on them. Oh, no. And, and they're going to give you a script at the end. I mean, I've seen lawyers do this when they get to a certain level where they think they're important. And now they're reading someone else's words. And uh-uh. Well, the problem is if you don't know every document, you don't know every deposition, everything, then when something comes up, I mean, a, a trial is a, a dynamic event. You don't know where to go to, to fix it. Yep. And, and not only that, you know, look, they call it thinking on your feet, you know, but when you're sitting at the trial table and your adversary is questioning, you're thinking on your butt, too. Yeah. You, know? so you got to make sure you're always in the game. 
Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. Look, I, I think that it's, that it's really important for, for people to not be afraid of any particular case. Because, Michael, as I now realize, you're a 50-year-old lawyer, so you're, you're in a really great position. And the position that you're in is, I call you old enough and young enough. You know, and, 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 and you're smiling, but it's true because, you know, I, I saw someone on television the other day who's an ex running back in the NFL. And now he, I think he's actually from Texas. And now what he's a cook. He's a chef. He's on television and he's a very dynamic guy. They, they say to him, do you miss playing in the NFL? And he says, not at all. He says, do you know any 70-year-old running backs? (laughs) He says, but you know some 70-year-old chefs? You know, and so I think that you are probably going to get to a point that you're going to want to try, you know, different kinds of cases um, because I'll tell you what happened with me. About 15 years ago, I decided I had won enough cases and, you know, I had done everything and achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. And now I'm just going to run the office and negotiate and, and do all of that. And that lasted actually a few years. And then what happened was I, I said, you know, I'm yearning to try a case. And I went back. And and I and at that point, because I was out of it for a few years doing trials, I was still practicing, I I think in, in some way I was wondering, could I still be as good as I used to be? And I was better. You know, and I think because I had I was hungry again. Yeah. You know what I mean? I had taken a little time off from trials and I was yearning and I, and I said, wait a second, this is who I am. This is what I do. And, and so, you know, I went back and, 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 and I, and I got, you know, 95 million and, and, and 62 million and 12 million. And I, and I just kept going and, and I said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm a trial lawyer and, and as long as I'm healthy and, and, and able to do it, uh, and God's good to me, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. So, and I hope you keep doing it for a long time. Uh, thank you, Michael, thank you for the opportunity for me to, uh, be able to, uh, talk to you about certain things that I, that I've done. Um, and, and you should understand that when I represented Tracy Morgan, the first thing I, I said to Tracy when I was in his house 
And if you speak to him, he'll tell you. I said, because you have a lot of people working for you, you know, you, you have uh, an entertainment lawyer, you have an agent, you have a business manager, you know, and all of these people don't survive unless you work because they get a percentage of what you do, right? And, and please understand, I don't work for you. I represent you. So you're going to listen to what I tell you to do. I'm not going to listen to what you tell me to do. And that's the difference in the dynamic of our relationship. And we're still friends today. Right. So, and that's the way, you know, famous people are not the same to deal with. That's one last question because, and I, and my, my mom will kill me if I don't ask you about this. So you've had famous plaintiffs, but you've also had uh, famous defendants. So what was it like suing Bill O'Reilly? It was um, nerve wracking. How come? Um, it was because it was about 15 years ago, I think. And, you know, I have a lot of confidence and I'm not afraid to sue anyone. And I had sued a lot of big companies already by that time. But Fox News doesn't play the same as anybody else. And he was their major money earner. Uh, and so they went after me, my wife, my firm with a vengeance where they would put things true or untrue in the newspaper about me, mostly untrue. Um, they had people on cable networks saying, I know this guy Morelli would have discredited him and he's no, he's nothing. And, and you might think you're a tough guy, but that's tough to deal with when you're trying to litigate a case. And, um, what they did to be able to silence me and make me drop the case was they sued me personally and they sued my law firm for something that doesn't even exist called civil extortion. Wow. And in the complaint, when they sued me, they named my wife in the complaint saying that the only reason why we were going after him was to affect the election of George W. Bush. Okay. And that she was a democratic operative. So when that's not easy to deal with, Michael, yeah. not, not for anyone. And so did it stop me? No. And I'll tell you, to the credit of a number of lawyers out there, civil lawyers, I was getting calls from a number of civil rights lawyers who called me and said that they would represent me as a defendant because I was being sued for free. Wow. Okay. Three different law firms called me. That's how invested and how much they believed in civil rights. And also they knew what Bill O'Reilly was doing was wrong. So they, they actually reached out to me 
and said they would represent me for free. I didn't go that route. I hired my own law firm. Um, but that's the reason why it was nerve wracking. I have to admit. I bet. Yeah, I know. And, and of course, a lot more stuff has come out about not just Bill O'Reilly, but the whole culture at Fox and how they were treating women. And- yeah, and, and it's so funny because I was on my way back from D.C. handling a case uh, a couple of years ago, and I was we were on Amtrak, and I was with two of my lawyers, and we were in a foretop, and one of the people sitting next to me, the fourth person, was a woman maybe in her 40s, dressed, you know, as a business person. And she was listening to us talk, so I think she figured out we were lawyers. So all of a sudden, she turns to me without even introducing herself. And she said, what do you think of the Me Too movement? So I was taken aback. I said, I think a lot about it. I said, because before there was a Me Too movement, there was a Me movement. Because I sued Bill O'Reilly 15 years ago when I didn't have any cover. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was an interesting conversation. You know, and you hadn't have done that first one. Who knows what would happen next? But, you know, I mean, would it ever have become uncovered if someone didn't take all those shots? Yeah, you know, I I didn't know that that's what I was uh, doing at the time. I, I was representing a client. I thought she had a real case and it was upsetting to me. Um, so I, I didn't realize that I had a larger purpose, but I'll take credit for it. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us. I've, I've gotten a lot. I'm actually really inspired uh, to go try my next case, hopefully in March and uh, get and, back and, in there. And, and the only, the only um, advice that I'm going to give, and I, I try not to give advice unless I'm asked, but I'm giving it anyway. Thank you. Uh, don't pigeonhole yourself. You you can try traumatic brain injury cases, obviously. You've learned that area. You can try trucking cases, obviously. You've learned that area. But you could try any civil case because just the way you learn that, you could learn other things. And you're And you're too young to be in one lane. You know, sometimes, you know... You have to change lanes, yep. you know. Remember what I said, young enough and old enough. Yeah, I was talking to my 15-year-old son about that this morning, actually. I was like, I'm, I'm finally starting to, to learn what I'm doing, but I have enough energy to keep doing it. So this is like my prime time. It is. It's great. Great to meet you, Michael. Great to meet you, too. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, Sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss. 
and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.